0: Good evening, it's good to see everyone tonight. David, are you reading tonight? All right, all right, very good, very good. Well, let's begin with the word of prayer and then we will get started. Shall we pray? Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, that we have this evening to be together as your people. We're thankful that we can study the book of Acts and to glean lessons from it that can help us to be more faithful. Our dear Father, we pray that you will strengthen each of us as we go through our day-to-day lives. We pray that we can be examples to those around us and that we can be strong in the struggles that we deal with. We know, Lord, that there are those who are dealing with loss and pain and suffering in various ways. We pray that you will comfort them and that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can do the same. Our Father, we're thankful above all things that when this life is over, we have a home in heaven with you. We pray this prayer now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, we are in Acts chapter 11. Let's do a quickie review here of our, to bring us up through Acts chapter 11. And then next week we'll move on to the second half of this chart, which will take us through the end of the book, picking up with Acts chapter 12. So, Acts chapters 1 through 5 or A, B, C, D, E. Acts chapter 1 is A. And what are our words? Okay, apostle and ascension. A new apostle is uh, chosen and the ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is B, beginning of the church. Acts chapter 3 is C, crippled man. D, okay, chapter 4 is D, disciples detained, that is, for healing the crippled man in the previous chapter. Acts chapter 5 is E, evil companions, that's Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 6, seven men chosen to fix. And what is that about? Okay, it's about the Grecian widows. There was a problem there, and they selected uh, seven men, I believe, to be the first deacons to address that problem. Acts chapter 7, Stephen Stone looks to heaven. Acts chapter 8. Okay, two men who don't wait to obey the gospel. And who are those two men? Ethiopian eunuch, that's right. Acts chapter 9. Saul is struck blind. Acts chapter 10. Gentiles begin. Acts chapter 11. Gentiles can go to heaven. Now, when you get to Acts 12 through the rest of the book, it's a little more tricky because in the first 11 chapters, I tried to pick one anchor point that would tell us what the whole chapter is about. The rest of the book, we're going to get into the missionary journeys, and that gets more difficult, because they're here and here and here and here, and there's just all sorts of different things. But I tried to pick an anchor point to help us remember what was going on. So we'll get to that next week. But, all right, Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 10, of course... You've got the first Gentile convert, that is Cornelius and his household. Acts chapter 11, the apostles and the brethren in Jerusalem, they hear about it. They hear about the conversion of Cornelius and Peter going into his house. And so when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, they let him hear about it. In fact, the Bible says, those of the circumcision... Basically, it says they let him have it. They contended with him. The language there indicates that it was a battle that raged on for some time. Now, as a side note, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but as a side note, you know, it is taught by the Catholic Church that Peter was the first pope. How does this fit with Peter being the first pope? If Peter was the first pope, do you think people uh, let the pope have it? Do they just rail on him and just lay into the Pope? That's not the way it works, is it? They bow down and kiss his ring. So this doesn't match with Peter being the first Pope. So they scold Peter. Well, then in verse number 4, Peter starts at the beginning, and he just explains everything in order. He says, guys, let me tell you what happened and why I did what I did. And so verse 15, he says, as I began to speak, and first he goes back and he tells about everything that happens and he tells about his vision and how the, the sheep was lowered down and the Lord told him, arise, kill and eat, and this happened three times. And then he says, when that happened, in, uh, I went to Cornelius' house, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it did us at the beginning. Now, apparently someone receiving the Holy Spirit was something that was observable because he said, I saw it. Whatever happened to him was something that I could see, and it was the same thing that happened to us at the beginning. All right? Acts eleven eighteen 18 says, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. So what does that mean? After they heard it, they said, all right, we, we believe it. We understand why you did what you did. Now, verse number 19 jumps back in time. Because if you go back to Acts chapter 8, remember in the, act, the end of Acts chapter 7? Acts 7, Stephen is stoned and looks to heaven. And then, the very first verse of Acts chapter 8, because of the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, the church is broken up in Jerusalem, and most of the Christians leave. Why? Because Saul is wreaking havoc on the church and because they're scared for their lives. Now, we've just basically left that and we had some other stories. Now we jump back to that. So Acts nine eleven nineteen says, Now those who were scattered abroad after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word, but to Jews only. So, he tells us that some of these people were only preaching to the Jews. Then 11, or 11 and verse 20 says, but some of them, I think he's telling us after this took place with Cornelius, some of them, the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they spoke to the Hellenist. And there's some dispute about what the word means here, but I think what he's telling us is the word of God started going to the Gentiles also. All right? Verse, uh, chapter 11 and verse 20, "...the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number believed, and turned to the Lord." Now, this was one of the last things we covered two weeks ago when we ran out of time. It says, "...they believed, and they turned to the Lord." There's a lot of little nuggets in here, in the original, that you don't necessarily catch when you go through it. But Acts 11 and verse 20, "...the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number believed, and they turned to the Lord. Believed here, I don't want to bore you with some things here, but believed is an aorist participle. If something is a participle, does anyone remember in from uh, your English grammar what a participle looks like? Anyone remember? A participle has an I-N-G on the end of it. Now, believed here is a participle, but do you notice it doesn't have an I-N-G on it? It has an ED on it. So how could it be a participle? Hold that thought for just a minute. Arist is the tense. Now, in English, we've got pre- present tense, we've got past tense, we've got future tense. We don't have anything called aorist tense. That was something they had in Greek that we don't have. So it is a different tense, and it's a participle. That means it ends in ING. And so literally... The the way this translates is, having already believed, having already believed, it is a participle, and the aorist tense indicates an action that occurs before the leading verb. I think when the Lord put uh, the Bible in Greek, it was very intentional that he did this. The aorist tense is important in the Greek, we don't have it in the English, and some things would be lost here. Now, I say all that, this is what it means. Literally, it means, having already believed, they then turned to the Lord. Having already believed took place before they turned to the Lord. The fact that it is aorist tense means that happened before the leading verb turned to the Lord. Now, you might say, so what? What are you getting at? It is more evidence that a person doesn't turn to the Lord by believing person believes, and then they turn to the Lord, which is what is taught throughout the Bible. That's why Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so you believe, and then you turn to the Lord. And so just little nuggets like this that we can pick out. All right, then chapter 11 and verse 22, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now that's where we left off. What happens in chapter 11 and verse 22 is these brethren that had traveled to other places and they started teaching the word, they started establishing churches in other places. And so they go to this city called Antioch and they establish the church in this place. And it grows and it takes off. And as a matter of fact, it is going to be, do I have a map up here? Uh, yes, can you see Antioch there up at the top of the Mediterranean Sea? Now, you see Jerusalem down at the bottom? This is where the brethren who left in chapter 11 and verse 19, they went to Phoenicia, they went to Cyprus, and they went to Antioch. Antioch ends up being the new central location of the church, even more so than Jerusalem as time passes. So, they established the church in Antioch, And then chapter 11 and verse 22 says that the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch. Why did they send Barnabas to Antioch? The text doesn't really say. I don't know if it was because they said, what in the world is going on up there in Antioch? We need to send somebody up there to check on it. Maybe it was that. Maybe it's that they said the church is really growing and prospering in Antioch. We need to send somebody up there... To help with that, I don't really know why they sent somebody up there. It might be because this is a Gentile church, and this is the first significant Gentile church that's growing, and so they say we've got to send Barnabas up there to check. Whatever the reason, they send Barnabas up there to deal with the church. All right, let's pick up now in Acts chapter eleven and verse twenty-three. David,
1: grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of the heart, that they should continue with the Lord.
0: Okay, when Barnabas gets there, he sees this is a great and faithful church. They've had a lot of conversions, and he encourages them that they should continue with the Lord. Now, there's something interesting here. The fact that they should continue in the Greek literally translates as they should keep on staying with the Lord. Now, A large part of the denominational world believes in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. That is, when you become a Christian, you can't stop staying with the Lord. When you're a Christian, you can't be lost. You're going to stay with the Lord no matter what. This is significant because Barnabas goes and tells them literally, keep on staying with the Lord. What would that mean? if he tells them, keep on staying with the Lord? Okay? It's possible not to be... What does he mean by keep on staying with the Lord? Okay? You you live faithfully. I think it means the same thing as 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. He says, keep on staying with the Lord. That is, keep on walking in the light and you'll keep you'll continue to be washed by the blood of Jesus. All right, verse 24. good Man,
1: full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord.
0: Okay, it's interesting here, once again, the author of the book of Acts, and who is that? Who is the author of Acts? Luke. Once again, Luke stops and he brags on Barnabas. It says he was a good man, he is full of the Holy Spirit, That probably is a reference to the fact that he had miraculous abilities and he's full of faith and a great number of people are added to the Lord. We're being told why it's so successful. He goes there, you've got a good man, a man who had miraculous abilities, which was important at that time because they didn't have the Bible. If he's going to go and he's going to teach them, he had to have these abilities so that he could speak the word of God. And so he was a good man. He had miraculous knowledge from God. He was full of faith. He's a faithful man, and he did effective work. Verse 25.
1: Then Barnabas departed for Soros to seek Saul. And when he he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Okay.
0: After being there for a while and working in Antioch, we're told that Barnabas departs departs from Antioch, and he goes to Tarsus looking for Saul. It's about 100 miles. Why did he go and seek for Saul? Now, I want you to think about this. I suspect, the text doesn't say this specifically, but I suspect that the church there is growing. It is taking off in Antioch. And the more people that were added and the more the church grew, the more they were going to need miraculous abilities. They didn't have the Bible yet. And so, when you look at the miraculous abilities, in fact, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and you read what a first century worship service looked like, when they prayed, the Holy Spirit would lead them in the prayer because they didn't know what to say yet. When they preached, the Holy Spirit would reveal the message and they would preach. Why? Because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a New Testament. When they would sing, it says the Holy Spirit even gave them songs. So, Imagine the church growing and Barnabas is the only one there who has a spiritual gift. What are, what, what are they going to do with this? They need some help. So if they were going to have additional people with spiritual gifts in that, and if these people are going to go out and teach other people, what are they going to need? They're going to need spiritual gifts. So. Why does Barnabas, after doing this great effective work and the church is growing, Barnabas decides that he needs to leave and seek Saul? Why would he need to go seek Saul, who, Paul? Okay, that's exactly right. Hold that thought because that's going to be my second point. But why would he have to seek after Saul? That's exactly right. Uh, Saul is an apostle. So if someone's going to pass on spiritual abilities to the people in this new church, only apostles could do that. So what you see here is that Barnabas had miraculous abilities, but he couldn't pass it on to someone else. And so he goes and seeks for Saul, Paul, to do this. Now, the second question I had was, why didn't he just go back to Jerusalem and get one of the other apostles? It's a pretty long trip to Jerusalem also, like it is to Tarsus. In fact, uh, it was farther to go back to Jerusalem, if you look at the map here. So you could say, well, it was shorter to go to Tarsus. That's true. That might have been one reason. But I suspect the reason that he went and got Saul, this is the new Gentile church. This becomes the center of the Gentile church in that area. And what is Saul? He's a chosen vessel to go to the Gentiles. And so when the church takes off and it starts growing, they need people with the miraculous abilities in the first century. So what do they do? He says, I'm going to go to Tarsus, and I'm going to get this man who's the chosen vessel to the Gentiles, and I'm going to bring him back, and he can lay hands on them, and then we can continue growing the church. And that's how it worked in the first century until the Bible was written and they didn't know that and they didn't need that anymore. Any thoughts about that? Any questions about that? Uh-huh? He's asking would Saul, I'm, I've been asked to repeat the questions because I've been told that people who are watching online uh, can't hear the questions, but he's asking at this point, would Saul still be viewed as a persecutor or would they have accepted him? We learn from the book of Galatians chapter 1 that at this point Saul had been in Tarsus for about three years. And so Saul had been converted. He had proven himself. You remember Barnabas took him back. We already uh, read that a while back. He introduced him and he defended him. And now it's been three years, so I don't think he would be viewed as a persecutor at this point. But yeah, it's it's a good question. And so Barnabas goes to find
1: Saul, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, he found him. In fact, look at the
0: distance there from Antioch to Tarsus. It's about 100 miles, I read, if you go by sea. If you go by land, it's further than that. Now, he's been there for three years. How? Is this going to be an easy task to go there and find him? Tarsus would have been a city of some size at that point in time. Why didn't he just text him? Uh, they didn't have cellular service in Tarsus at that time. so um, I'm being a little silly, but the point is they didn't have that kind of thing. How were you going to find somebody? You were just going to have to travel there. And you're just going to have to start talking to people. Do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? And you're going to have to ask around. I was reading that the way the original language is, it seems to carry with it the idea that it it was some difficulty in finding him. But he finally does find him, and then he takes him back to Antioch, and they spend a year, they teach a great many people. Saul gets there, no doubt, he's laying hands on people. Why would you think he does that? When he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, one of the things he says to them is, I desire to come to you that I may depart unto you spiritual gifts. Well, what's the point? He was saying to them, I want to come to the church in Rome so that I can lay hands on you and give you spiritual gifts. There's no reason to think that's not exactly what he's doing here. And you know that's what the first century church had to have to exist. All right? And then that last phrase here, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is a key verse. The disciples were first called Christian. Where did that name come from? Who gave them the name Christian? It doesn't actually say here. Um, It has long been argued that the name came from their enemies. It was a term of derision. You know, they were mocking them, calling them Christians. You're the followers of Christ. Uh, I don't think that's right. That's, that's long been argued that, but some people, on the basis of the fact that when you read this in the grammar, you've got double infinitives in the active voice, literally, that uh, Saul and Barnabas taught and called them Christians first in Antioch. There's some argument amongst, you know, the Greek scholars whether that's right, if that's right, what that would mean is the Holy Spirit gave them that name and it came through um, Paul and Barnabas at that point. I'm calling him Paul. His name hasn't actually been changed yet, but uh, we know him better by Paul. Um, but I want to show you this. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 2. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, uh, you ought to write that next to this verse. Acts 11:26. 26. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In Isaiah 62 and verse 2, the Lord writes to his people, the Jews, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall call. They were Jews, they were the children of Abraham, but he said, You're going to be called by a new name. What's the new name that they were going to be called by? Isaiah is the messianic prophet. Isaiah writes a lot about Christ, and he writes a lot about the church. And so when he tells the Jews, you're going to be called by a new name, he's talking about the church. And what new name were they going to be called by in the church? Christians. They're going to be called Christians. And then notice the phrase in Isaiah 62 in verse 2, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. What does that mean? They're going to be called by a new name, and the Lord's going to give them this name. Then when you get to Acts 11 and verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I believe these two verses go together. And I believe we're we're being told that the Lord calls us Christians. Anybody have any idea how many times the word Christian appears in the New Testament? What's that? Um, more than that, not many more, but the word Christian, you would think it appears a lot, wouldn't you? The name Christian or the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Once is right here, Acts eleven twenty-six. 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In Acts 26, 28, you remember that Agrippa, King Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to do what? To become a Christian. And then, in 1 Peter 4, 6, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That's the three times it appears in the Bible. And none of those times does it appear to be a name that was given by the enemies. In fact, the the fact that it's quoted here uh, by Peter seems to indicate that this is something that is a legitimate term. Okay? Verse
1: 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay. What we're told here, in these days, prophets
0: came from Jerusalem to Antioch. These are probably prophets from uh, the church there in Jerusalem. We know it's Jerusalem. So you've got people... In an area where they would have had a lot of miraculous gifts, they're gonna come here. Why? The church is growing like crazy in Antioch. And so they go to get Saul. He's gonna come and lay hands on them. Some prophets actually come from Jerusalem to help them. So you got people coming from Tarsus down to Antioch. You got people coming from Jerusalem up to Antioch. Why? They're helping the church grow there. It is taking off and growing amongst the Gentiles, the rest of the book of Acts is going to be about the church growing amongst the Gentiles. And it's going to be about them going from city to city to city. And then when we get to the books of the New Testament, when we read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, you know what those are? These are all cities that he's going to go to in the book of Acts. And he's going to establish churches there amongst the Gentiles. And then later, he's going to write to those churches. And that's where we get most of these epistles from. First and second, Timothy and Titus were written to preachers. But most of the epistles are written to churches that are established in Gentile churches during the book of Acts. Now, it says, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. What was a prophet? A prophet was a person who had the Holy Spirit, and particularly he had the gift of prophecy. Now, I want to show you this because I think if we're going to understand the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and we're going to understand statements about the prophets, and why they went and got Saul, and why they sent prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch, you really have to understand what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first century. So... I want you to notice this. This is from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. We notice, notice in red, it says there are diversities of gifts. That is, there's various gifts. Now, if you will notice highlighted in yellow, I've got each gift that was given by the Holy Spirit highlighted here. There are nine of them. They are wisdom, knowledge, faith healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and interpretations of tongues. It appears from what we read in the New Testament that the apostles would have had all of these gifts. They had the Holy Spirit in its fullness here, all of these abilities. It seems that other people in the first century, if they received the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way, they would have it um, in a limited sense. They might have one gift, or they might have two gifts. Do you remember what we just read in Acts chapter 10? The Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius. He says, as he did us in the beginning. What did they see took place with Cornelius that let them know that he had the Holy Spirit? Anybody remember? Remember? Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's what happened with the apostles, but specifically, what did he see, what did they witness with Cornelius so that they knew he had the Holy Spirit? He's speaking in tongues, yeah. He is speaking in tongues. Well, if you look, um, in fact, I think I made another chart here. Uh, yeah, here we go. Here's the, the nine gifts listed. If you will look at the second to the last gift here, different kinds of tongues. That is one of the spiritual gifts. And what we see with Cornelius is he received one of these spiritual gifts. And the apostles said, look, he's received the Holy Spirit just like we did in the beginning. In Acts chapter 2, when they received the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They began to speak in other tongues. Um, Yes, sir. You're talking about in Acts 10? Acts 10 or 11, either one. Okay. And the fact that Peter does not lay hands on them to pass
1: on this gift of speaking in tongues, the fact that it is received directly
0: from heaven is, I think, another thing that's going on here. They received it as we see it. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. And why would it be that they received it directly from heaven? What was the point in Acts 10 of the Holy Spirit coming directly from heaven upon the Gentiles? Every other time in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is passed by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Two exceptions. One is in Acts chapter 2. The other is in Acts chapter 10. Why in Acts chapter 10 did the Holy Spirit come from heaven on the Gentiles? The reason is... It was to convince the Jews that this was of God. He he was saying to them, I am sanctioning the Gentiles. This came from heaven. There was no doubt about it. That's a good point, Jimmy. there's also the idea that you know at two or three. Uh-huh. That's right. And when you go back to Acts chapter 11... And he starts getting attacked. The text specifically tells us that the six went back with him. And so he's there, and he's got six credible Jewish witnesses with him. And so they contended with him a long time arguing. Uh, The text indicates in the Greek that they raged against him. But he made his case. He had witnesses. All right, I want to show you this. Our time is about to run out. Wow, I cannot even read that. That is so small. Let me pull up my notes here. Um, Here's the nine spiritual gifts. And I want to read this because it's going to help us understand some things as we get into the rest of the book of Acts. We see that this prophet came. uh, In fact, verse 11 says, "In these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch." What is a prophet? What we're going to see, in fact, if you look at verse 28... One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and he showed by the Spirit that there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, based on that, you ought to be able to figure out what a prophet is, right? A prophet is one who speaks for God, and he can tell the future. That's one thing. In these nine spiritual gifts, you've got the gift of wisdom. This likely would have included um, inspired elders, giving them the type of wisdom that they needed to guide the church in its infancy and to deal with problems that they would encounter. The gift of knowledge would have been information that the Holy Spirit gave them. you remember in John 14 and 16, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all these things and bring to your remembrance. Uh, It likely is going to be this. It is going to be revelation from God. Uh, Miraculous faith. Um, There's a lot of debate amongst brethren about what this means and we're not told specifically. Perhaps this is what the apostles sometimes lacked. Do you remember that when Peter was walking on the water and he began to sink, that Jesus said to him, O ye of little faith? Maybe it's that sort of thing. Um, To be honest, I really don't know. Um, Healings, miraculous healings, that's pretty self-evident. miracles. This probably includes things like casting out of demons, uh, healing people. Uh, remember Mark 16 said you could be bitten by a snake and you won't die. And then he simply has uh, the term prophecy. This would be a prophet. This would be a person who spoke for God. He could speak about things from the past, the Old Testament. He could speak about things uh, in the present, revealing the Word of God in the New Testament age and he could speak the future because he had miraculous divine knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're told this prophet named Agabus is going to tell them about a famine that is coming. And then we've got discerning of spirits. This is a miraculous gift that gave a person the ability to tell whether a prophet or a teacher was speaking for God or if he's a false prophet. So if a person uh, began to teach and say, I'm a prophet of God, and then he began to speak, these people that had this gift could say he's not. And then you've got different kinds of tongues, that is, people that could speak various languages, and then the interpretation of tongues. And that is simply an interpreter. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what you read is, in the first century church, if a person could speak Russian. They probably didn't have Russian then, but if a person could speak Russian and that was his ability, what he says is if you don't have a person who can interpret Russian or that person can't interpret Russian himself, then don't speak Russian. He said because it's not going to do any good. It's not going to make any sense for a person to get up and speak Russian when no one in the audience speaks Russian and no one can interpret Russian. And so If you had that gift, it would have been useless under those circumstances. So, these nine spiritual gifts were given to the first century church. Now, if you think about them, why? You're going to have to have wisdom to deal with the problems that they're going to encounter. You need knowledge from God. They had the strengthening of faith, the healing, and the miracles to prove that this really was from God. Prophecy, revealing the Word of God discerning of spirits to be sure that we don't have false teachers, the speaking in tongues and interpreting of tongues so that they could go out to the whole world and talk to anyone and teach them the gospel. The language barrier would not have been there in the first century to spread the Word of God. So that's the nine gifts. Uh, We'll pick up with verse 28. In fact, we only have, uh, what, three more verses. Ah, I should have tried hard to finish that. Three
1: more verses, and we'll finish up Chapter 11. Thanks.